Namaste and good evening to all of you. We are continuing tonight with our readings from the Bhagavad Gita, explaining the fundamental yogic and spiritual message as explained by Krishna, one of the greatest spirits of this humanity, under the form of the dialogue between Krishna and Arjuna. And we were reading last time, we were towards the end of the second chapter. And in the second chapter, after Krishna presented a very abrupt philosophy, very spiritual, very abstract in a way, very rising the standards very high, because Arjuna, although he could understand it intellectually, he could not relate to it, then Krishna started explaining to him in another way. And he said, now you heard this according to Sankhya, now I'm going to explain it according to yoga. But actually, as the text shows, when Krishna in chapter 2 says yoga, he means something like jnana yoga, raja yoga, a yoga of the mind, because a lot of what Krishna has to explain in the second part of this chapter 2 is about the condition of the mind, how the mind gets disturbed by emotions, how the mind gets disturbed by the turbulent, turbulent senses, how a real yogi manages to withdraw his senses from the external world and to remain undisturbed like in the yogic pratyahara. That is why... Actually, although Bhagavad Gita is very much about karma yoga, actually Krishna didn't even start. He, in the beginning, presented the basic philosophy, some high philosophical terms. Then he comes at the level of the mind and only at some later time will he actually reach, in chapter 3 only, will he reach to actually presenting the karma Yoga, And uh, he was making this brilliant study about how different emotions succeed each other, how the decadence goes, starting from being disturbed of the objects of the senses and thus creating attachment, and from attachment desire, and from desire anger, and from anger delusion, and from delusion, forgetfulness, the loss of memory, and from loss of memory, the loss of discrimination, and from that, perdition. The last stage being is being lost completely. And we continue to conclude this second chapter in which Krishna presents a mental approach to the issue. And he comes with the opposite. He said how the human being can be lost because of the objects of senses and the attachment for them. And he says, but he who is self-disciplined, who moves among the objects of the senses, with the senses freed from attachment and aversion, and under his own control, he attains to peace, to grace. Therefore, here is, of course, the ideal of so many generations of yogis from India, to have reached to peace, to grace. The word which he uses here is prasada. Remember that the mantra which you learned first time in this school in Laya Yoga, 
is called Prasada Mantra. One of its words is the mantra of grace, the mantra of peace. There are various translations of the word Prasada. So he says, but the self-controlled man moving amongst objects with the senses under restraint and free from attraction and repulsion attains to peace. Therefore, even here, Krishna says that it's not the problem is not cutting the contact with the objects of senses. Like stop drinking hot chocolate because hot chocolate is so delicious that you will end by being attached to it. Actually says... He who is self-disciplined, who moves among the objects of senses, with the senses freed from attachment and aversion. The two opposites are attachment and aversion. As you are told from the beginning in the lecture of Aparigraha, the human mind can develop two extremes. Attachment towards the things which please it and aversion towards the things which produce suffering or pain. As soon as we have a thing which hurts us two, three times, we develop instinctive aversion to it. Either that thing produces us biological fear of pain or situations which give us emotional pain, such as we go in a collective where everybody mocks us and we feel humiliated and because we are very vanitous and pride, we feel that as a pain. And then after two, three such experiences, we develop aversion. We don't want to go there again because the mind tells us if you go there, you are going to get trouble again. You are going to suffer again. Aversion towards everything which hurts and attachment towards everything which is pleasurable. And Krishna says the whole trick is to move with the senses under restraint, free from attraction and repulsion. That, of course is more of a tantric approach. Again, Krishna never says run away from any temptation that might have been misunderstood from some of his previous statements, but actually he says clearly, move among the objects of senses, but without attachment or repulsion, controlling the mind, and thus you attain to what he calls here grace or peace, which is nothing else but a symbolic word for wisdom or spiritual realization. And he says in grace, in this grace, in this prasada, in this enlightenment or peace, is born an end to all his sorrows. Indeed, the intellect of the man of exalted consciousness soon becomes firmly established. Here Krishna announces the dogma of all the Indian spirituality as well as Buddha's spirituality and others. He says if you reach to this prasada, if you reach to this peace, if you reach to this grace, there is the end of all sorrows. Remember that when Buddha himself started his spiritual travel, why did he do it? He wanted to find a solution to the problem of suffering. Of course, together with suffering, he saw death, old age, illness, but all of them were boiled down to suffering. Buddha, as a young, perceptive, discriminate man, he could not fail to see that the world is, from a certain standpoint, sounds a pretty pessimistic standpoint, it's true, that the world is bathed in an ocean of suffering. There is pain everywhere of one kind or another. 
And Buddha simply inquired if he can put an end to suffering, to his suffering and to the suffering of the world. Therefore, this is one of the great goals. That's why people want to reach nirvana. That's why people want to reach the kingdom of heaven. That's why people want to reach ecstasy, samadhi, cosmic consciousness or moksha, mukti, liberation. Because they want to put an end to sorrows. Of course, this may come in ways which are not thought exactly by the human mind. The human mind simplifies, oversimplifies these things. Like, for example, Ramana Maharishi reached to the state where he put an end to sorrows and he died of a painful cancer at the same time. So to put an end to sorrows does not literally mean just to put an end to every organic disease or something, but it means reaching to a state of consciousness where those will not influence anymore, where one's happiness does not depend on those anymore. And therefore, again, he says, in that peace, all the pains are destroyed, for the intellect of the tranquil minded soon becomes steady. He equates, he explains, the second part of the shloka says, all the sorrows reach to an end because the intellect of such a man of high consciousness becomes firmly established. The sorrows are over when the intellect is firm. Remember, the mind is a monkey. For the non-yogi, when the mind is a monkey, there automatically will be sorrow or pain. To be able to bring the end of all the sorrows, Krishna says, the mind must be stabilized. And that's one of the great themes in Bhagavad Gita. Whenever Krishna speaks about Raja Yoga, about the yoga of the mind, he comes all the time to this you must be able to discipline the mind. You must be able to stabilize the mind. That is a great thing. And of course, for most people, it is like a bridge too far. He says, he who is not established has no intellect, nor has he any steady thought. The man without steady thought has no peace. For one without peace... How can there be happiness? It's another chain, this time made of three, a causal chain. He says, if your mind is not established, you have no intellect. The word which is used here is, of course, referring to buddhi. Buddhi, as it is usually called the intellect, in yoga, in technical yoga, in tantric yoga, is understood as a deeper layer of the mind. There is a deeper layer of Ajna Chakra. At a more superficial layer, Ajna Chakra, the mind, is called Manas. But when the mind goes at a deeper level, like for example the mind which you have in meditation, that mind becomes called Buddhi. And that is the mind of a refined person. It's not just the monkey intellect which jumps from here to there. It is another kind of intellect, much more profound, which develops in meditation. And Krishna then says, he who is not stable has no intellect, has no buddhi, cannot reach to that deeper form of the mind, nor has he any steady thought. The man without steady thought has no peace. So here Krishna claims aphoristically, like he doesn't even bother to explain. It's like something which everybody knows. If your mind is not steady, you cannot have peace. 
Many people say, I have no peace, I'm anxious, I am restless, I cannot, I would like to have a bit of peace, I'm tormented, I'm manic, I'm depressive, I'm suffering, I'm this, I am not at peace. How do you get at peace? The peace comes, says Krishna, through stability of the mind. Therefore, from the mere concentration of the mind, Trataka, Dharana, Sambhavi, Mudra, and other such things, all of them are meant to give peace. And then another logical implication, he says, for one without peace, how can there be happiness? So being established in a higher wisdom, one gets the higher intellect and one gets a steady thought. From a steady thought, one gets peace generally and from peace only, one can get happiness. In the very lecture which we hold in yoga, the what is yoga, we say people claim that they are looking for happiness. And everybody thinks that happiness is in this or this or this or that. And we dismiss that pretty easily because it's easy to see that happiness is neither in this nor in that, neither in this nor in that. And what is happiness? Where does it come from? Here is a fresh angle to it from the mouth of Krishna himself. Krishna says, there is, how can there be peace? How can there be happiness when there is no peace? Krishna says the first condition to reach happiness is that first of all you should have reached some degree of peace. A person who is not at peace cannot experience happiness. It's very important for those of you who are still in search of happiness to know that the trigger of it is peace and the trigger of peace is a stable intellect. So there is no knowledge of the self for the unsteady and to the unsteady, therefore, this buddhi, this meditation is not possible and to the one without meditation, there can be no peace and to the man who has no peace, how can there be happiness. This is a very important message. It's not technically relevant, but it is a knowledge which Krishna does not bother to explain like that's what Krishna, I say. He simply takes it for granted like this is what everybody knew in their time. It was one of the well-known theories of human consciousness and psyche that happiness is produced first of all by peace. And he continues, when a man's mind is governed by any of the wandering senses, his intellect is carried away by it as a ship by the wind on water. That's a parable, it's an image. It says, when the mind which follows in the wake of wandering senses, the senses are exactly like we don't say the mind, we say the monkey mind, to make sure that everybody understands how unstable and how untamed it is. Exactly in the same way here, Krishna does not say the mind which follows in the wake of the wonder of the senses. He says the mind which goes in the wake of the wandering senses. The five senses are wandering all the time. We jump from one sense to another. We see, we hear, we taste, we feel, and we just go on and on and on like this in this way. And therefore he says, for the mind which goes is carried by the senses, like the senses should be controlled by the mind. But for the average person, unfortunately, the senses are the ones which control the mind. 
you hear something, it has disturbed your peace of mind. Somebody comes and tells you something, and then because you heard something, your peace of mind is gone. Because you've seen something, because you felt something, your peace of mind is gone. Or sometimes, remember, the senses are just the sensation of it. The senses have a subtle part, like you can imagine a sensation or imagine something and that it will have the same effect. And therefore, he says, there is no more discrimination. The intellect is carried away as the wind carries away a boat on the water. Just as a wind is blown, uh, just as a boat will be carried by the wind in the direction of the wind more or less, exactly in the same way, if the senses are allowed to be the ruler of the being, then the being loses mind and the being is thus carried in a wild direction. Here, this is the favorite theory of perception. Patanjali would gladly endorse this. This is the theory of the mind and of the senses. And constantly the Indian culture in classical yoga, in the old Vedic things, in some parts of Vedanta and other spiritual traditions, constantly hammers on this subject. That the wandering senses delude the mind and then the mind loses its cool, loses its discrimination, loses this meditation mind. We get out of meditation and we go into manas, into a superficial intellect, and then we are carried away like a boat which is carried by the wind. And he continues, Therefore, he whose senses are all withdrawn from their objects, O mighty armed, his intellect is established. Here, funnily enough, Krishna suddenly changes tone and he basically gets to the point not that you should move through the objects of the senses but with no attachment, no aversion, which was more the tantric angle to it, like you can stay in the world, you can confront the things, but he formulates it like this. He says, therefore, O mighty armed Arjuna, his knowledge is steady, whose senses are completely restrained from sense objects. This has a double understanding because it means don't touch the sense objects. If a certain physical sensation is addictive, then don't touch yourself. If a certain taste is addictive, then don't eat that. If a certain sound or image or something is addictive, don't go there. So one understanding is, as I said, he whose senses are withdrawn from their objects. While before, he didn't say that. He said, move among the objects of the senses, but just be discriminate in the meaning of have no attachment, have no aversion to them. Manage to stay away from the extremes. That is why this shloka, this strophe is a little bit ambiguous because it is like Krishna sometimes changes tone. He says two things. He speaks to one side and he speaks to the other side. In the classical yoga at the time when Krishna were practicing, all the munis and all the sadhus and all the rishis and all the people who are living in that ancient Vedic society, they very many of them were on the pratyahara side on insulation from the senses, staying away from the senses, 
rather than the tantric thing that confronting the senses or finding peace in the middle of the actions of the senses. And then there comes a shloka which is very mysterious and cryptical, which has been interpreted in so many ways and which is again one of the most famous shlokas from the Gita, exactly as I said that yoga is skillfulness in action and everybody who knows the Gita knows that shloka. There are a few shlokas which are, or a few statements which are quoted always, like Krishna said, yoga is skillfulness in action. The one which follows is one of these legendary ones. Almost every chapter in Bhagavad Gita has one or two of these big statements. And he says, that which is night for all beings, therein the sage, the self-controlled one, is awake. That wherein beings are awake is night for the sage who sees. So here it describes a world which is topsy-turvy. It says that which is night to all the beings, then to the self-controlled man, to the enlightened sage, is awake. When all the beings are awake, this is night for the sage who sees. It means People are interested in something and Ramakrishna is not interested in those things. Ramakrishna is interested in something and people are don't, not paying any attention to what Ramakrishna is. Like these things, sometimes the wise and the world are completely 180 degrees, completely upside down from each other. That's why sometimes the wise, the sage, is so provocative to the world because the sage often goes against the world. It is natural instinct of everybody to get attached. And the yogis say, don't get attached. Try to go against that. It's the natural urge to consume your sexual energy the regular way, the animal way. And some yogis say, don't go the other way around. It is the natural urge of every person to have revenge, to take revenge. And Jesus says, forgive your enemies. Refrain from taking revenge, although it feels sweet and it's the natural tendency to do that. Like, generally wisdom goes in a totally opposite way. There have been, there is a verse in a poem which says, do not seek these laws the laws of life and death, the laws of God, the laws of wisdom, do not research these laws for you are crazy when you understand them. That's why sometimes the wise is characterized as crazy. In the tarot, the last of the cards of the tarot game and system of divination is the fool, the enlightened one who has included the universe is like a fool, like a clown, like the king's jester. He is shown going crazily and that is the equivalent of Shiva Nataraja. Shiva Nataraja in a certain way is a fool. He just dances carefree and destroys the universes and creates the universes. What the Hindus have seen as Shiva Nataraja the Taro Kabbalists have seen, the Hermeticists, they have seen as the fool, the madman. That's why sometimes spiritualists are called madmen. In Tibet there were yogis who were called the madman, divine madman. 
Druk Pakunle, the Bhutanese great enlightened, the greatest probably enlightened being of the history of Bhutan, is called the nicknamed the Divine Madman. Of course, he was not mad in a pathological way, but his solutions to the problems of the world could as well have come from a madman, like unless you had a great faith and a great insight, you could not understand why a man would act like this. When you look at the actions of Padmasambhava or Milarepa or Ramakrishna or Saint Mark of Ethiopia or other great madmen, you see that they succeed mysteriously, but at the same time they are completely gone. They are very, very, very different from what the regular human being is. And when they live with themselves for 30 years in a cave or somewhere in a wilderness, they become very, very different than the well-behaved citizen of the society. They reach some other level of consciousness. That is why this, this is typical. He says, that which is night for all the beings therein, the sage is awake. That wherein the beings are awake, it is night for the sage who sees. This shloka has been interpreted in so many ways. Like the sage does not go in the world of people, but has a world of his own. But some people have said maybe it means also that the yogis should meditate at night. Like many Christian mystics did prayer especially at night. They stood up the whole night in vigil. And when everybody was sleeping, all the lazy monks were sleeping. And the diligent ones did eight hours of prayer at night. Not only as an act of will, but simply because everything is upside down. Everybody sleep, everybody's mind is different. The collective subconscious mind in that area is flat and passive and yin because everybody is falling asleep and is dreaming. And then doing prayer in that environment, doing meditation in that environment has a very different effect. This can be interpreted even literally to sleep. When, that, when it's night for the other people, it's day for the yogi. I've seen yogis and Christian mystics interpreting this. Of course, the Christian mystics were not doing it because of Bhagavad Gita, but because of mystical traditions within their realm, interpreting it in this way. That is also showing this completely upside-down position. Here, Krishna does not tell us the ultimate truth. He tells us a truth on the path because Arjuna has in front of him a clear task and Krishna is not telling him about Bhava Samadhi and that Krishna tells him about what the next step is. And that's why Krishna presents him with this attitude of the mystical person, which is very often contradicting the world. Mystical people, they just want to do everything the other way around. And because of this, they provoke and they sometimes seem to have no common sense. Instead of sleeping, they sit up and meditate. Instead of eating, they fast. Instead of consuming, expelling the sexual energy, they try to conserve it, and so on and so forth, going against nature. There is even a name for this in the mystical traditions of India. It's called swimming against the stream, swimming against the river, swimming towards the origin, towards the spring of the river. And this means so many things. In Zen, 
in Taoism, actually, there is the parable of the ten bulls. And associated to that, there is a famous dictum, which says, in the beginning, the mountains are mountains and the valleys are valleys, which means for the ignorant person, they look and they take everything to face value. You see a person, you don't see the soul of that person, the spiritual age, the maturity. You see just the body. You think that the person is the body. If the body has died, the person has disappeared. But the person has not disappeared because the body has died. That's a very materialistic, primitive, gross way of looking upon things. So, for the primitive person, the mountains are mountains, the valleys are valleys. Like everything is taken at face value. And this world is the only world there is because we don't see any other one. We don't perceive it and therefore what else could there exist in this universe? Everything is wishful thinking. No, no, there cannot exist anything else. But then he says, in the next stage, the mountains turn into valleys and the valleys turn into mountains, which is exactly the same thing. When it's day for some, for the sage it's night. What is night for the others, for the sage is day. Things are the other way around. The spiritual person sees it the other way around. There are spiritual persons who say you should cry when a child is born, not when somebody dies. Because when somebody dies, they go in a better world. And unless their karma is absolutely horrendous, they are going in a lighter, better place. But when somebody comes down here, they come down here because they are dragged by their karma. And they come here not really to have fun. They come here to be imprisoned once more in the chain of these successive lives. And thus, there have been sages who said people celebrate when they baptize a child, when they give birth to a child, and then when somebody dies, they cry like a tragedy has happened. But actually, it can be seen also the other way around. Only an ignorant person will never see it the other way around because they haven't seen this state which transcends life and death. And that is why I am saying this. You have to meditate often on this. That which is night for all being, there the sage is awake. That where the beings are awake, that for it's night for the sage. It means so many things. The sage is awake in the sleep. People, when they sleep, they black out. But the sage does nidra yoga. And because of this, he is awake. And the regular state of consciousness where people think they are awake, the sage goes into meditation and his brain waves are changed radically and he goes into buddhi, the intellect of meditation, and all this discursive mind, they are the, the wise sleep. Like you can see a person in meditation and sometimes think maybe this person just sleeps in a very stable position. For an ignorant Buddha sleeps in cross-legged position and at the same time for Buddha, he is awake where the regular person sleeps. There is always an opposition. Spirituality in the beginning makes a lot of things the other way around. And that of course provokes and that is why the spiritual seeker is always considered sectarian, fanatic, freak and everything. Because actually most of the spiritualities in this world, they teach us to do something exactly the opposite. From the shamanic rituals, 
where people do things in different ways, they sacralize the space, they behave in different ways, and of course, up till the great metaphysical things, spirituality puts things the other way around. However, the Taoist dictum doesn't stop to stage two. The Taoist dictum says, but in the end, when you finish the whole spiritual caboodle, the mountains re-become mountains and the valleys re-become valleys. It's not that Krishna doesn't know that, but it's not relevant for Arjuna at this moment of the discourse. Now Arjuna is just a, because Arjuna is an aristocrat. He's from the warrior class. He's a kshatriya. As an aristocrat, it's not possible that with his strong Manipura of a warrior, that he doesn't have a bit of ego attachments to Manipura. And that's exactly what he has. He says, I'm going to do this war and kill Drona and Bhishma. I cannot do that. My honor will be stained forever. Better I die. And then Krishna says, yeah, but if you do, don't do what is right, also your honor is going to be stained. So here you have a total catch, a total deadlock. Because you do it, it's going to be bad for your honor. You don't do it, it's going to be bad for your honor. That's why Krishna, knowing that Arjuna is still fighting with his Manipura, with his, he, he is an aristocrat, he is a kingly family, a royal family, and therefore he is not an enlightened being, and he just has to be educated from that level. That's why Krishna does not teach him about bhava samadhi, transcending, and all those things. Krishna first teaching him the first step. The first step is that, Arjuna, you should know that for the wise one, sometimes black is white and white is black. Things go the other way around. It is exactly like, like Patanjali says, for the people of spirit, Purusha exists. And Prakriti looks like Maya, illusion. And for the people in the world, Maya exists and Purusha seems not to exist. All the materialists say that there is no spirit because they can't measure it and they can't feel it or perceive it in any way. What, it's exactly the same thing. There is an opposition. Purusha and Prakriti, Shiva and Shakti, in a certain way they are opposed to each other. Not opposed in the meaning that they fight with each other. The limited human mind can see them as opposites that fight. But they are opposed. Shakti is full. Shiva is empty. Full and empty are two opposites. That is why, of course, Shiva and Shakti love each other precisely because they are the opposites and the opposites attract each other. And since Shiva and Shakti are the absolute opposites, then automatically they absolutely attract each other. That is the archetypal love, the archetypal desire. But again, Krishna here, although he no doubt knows about this, he doesn't go as far as that. He simply says that that which is night to all the being, the sage is awake there. And again, remember, how many things are like a night for the human being? The sleep. Death, so many things are like a night for the human being, the dark night of this. There, the sage is awake. And that, when all the beings are awake, that is night for the sage who sees. Again, I have seen sometimes extreme interpretations, like even people who try to sleep in the day and 
do yoga in the night, like going exactly topsy-turvy, because that interpretation is not sanctioned by the great commentators, Shankaracharya and other gigantic commentators of Bhagavad Gita. They say that's taking it too far. It's not what Krishna meant, but nevertheless, this, this is having a very deep range of meanings. This is one of the famous statements of Krishna, what is where everybody feel that there is night, the sage is awake, what is where all the beings are awake, there the sage sees night. And we continue with, the, we are about to close chapter 2, then he says, giving this statement, he whom all desires enter as waters enter the ever full and unmoved sea attains peace and not he who cherishes desires. Therefore, he says, if he attains peace into whom all desires enter as waters enter the ocean, which filled from all sides remains unmoved, but not the man who is full of desires. Here, it's a little bit the statement is different because it's if you are disturbed by desires or not, because he says clearly, the desires should enter in you as waters enter the ocean, the ocean which is forever full and unmoved. Therefore, the fact that a river flows in the ocean, what difference does it make to the ocean? The ocean, either rain pours on it or a river flow into the ocean, the ocean is still full. It never got empty. Therefore, the ocean doesn't care. Therefore, a desire comes and if you are detached to it, treat it with detachment. It's the same double entendre. Krishna is himself a very tantric man in many ways. But at the same time, he speaks to a civilization which is full of hermits, full of ascetic yogis. Therefore, he needs to give both sides to it. And the brilliant thing is that Krishna manages to be tantric and non-tantric at the same time, thus giving a message which is enjoyed by the Vedantins, classical yogis, ascetics, and at the same time gives a message which can be read in a tantric way. That is a great skillfulness. And therefore, he says, the desires should remain, remain, you should remain unmoved to them as the ocean, but not the man who cherishes desires. Like, oh, I want this desire, I want Then It's like the ocean is moved. The ocean is thirsty for that river and says, oh, let it come. Then, in that moment, it's no peace. He, this is about to attain Peace, this prasada, grace, peace, and all that ensues from it. Therefore, here again and again, Krishna makes a whole praise of detachment under so many forms. Because ultimately, that's what he asks of Arjuna. He says, oh Arjuna, if you were detached, this would be so much easier. But because you are not, and now you are hesitating here then all this has to be done. All this has to be explained. And the last but one of the shlokas in the chapter 2 says, When a man acts without longing, having relinquished all desires, free from the sense of I and mine, he attains to peace. 
This is the prelude to karma yoga. In the next chapter, he's about to define karma yoga. And this is the prelude to it because he already said, when a man acts, suddenly he came to action. When a man acts without longing, having relinquished all desires, free from the sense of I and mine, he attains to peace. Like uh, the sense of I and mine. This is possessiveness. This is parigraha. Mine, I, I am doing the, all the ego, the psychological root of the ego. And Krishna says, therefore, act, but relinquishing. Krishna doesn't say you shouldn't act. Never. When it comes to action, Krishna definitely does refuse this thing that one should refrain from action. Therefore, he says, the man attains peace who, abandoning all desires, moves about without longing, without the sense of mine, and without egoism. That is the conclusion here. And this prepares the ground for chapter 3, where suddenly he will move into the main theme, where he speaks about action in the yogic way. And he concludes by saying, This is the state of Brahman, O Arjuna. Having attained it, a man is not deluded. Established in that, even at the last moment, he attains eternal freedom in divine consciousness. Such important statements in this last concluding shloka. He says, this is the Brahmic state. Why does he need to say that? Because you see a person who doesn't have a guru a person who is maybe born with exceptional spiritual gifts from a previous life, like a Ramakrishna, like a Krishnamurti, like uh, others and others in history who were avatars or something of the kind, even people of mystical great talent like Walt Whitman and others, they can sometimes reach states of superconsciousness. There they suddenly see that they are detached from everything, they have no desires, they can stay but then that's a very abnormal state. Ramakrishna being born in India, therefore in a rather spiritual culture, and he tells to Bhairavi Brahmani, Mother, maybe I'm crazy because my family and many people think that I'm a nutcase. And she tells him, no, you are not crazy. That's a very good state of consciousness which you actually have. So Ramakrishna himself is confused. He says, maybe I'm crazy. So here Krishna has to say it. This state which I have described with the control over the mind and the senses and this thing which I said that thus you uh, become free of all those, this is the state of Brahman, O Arjuna. He is very clear about this. Like, Don't make any confusion. This is not an abnormal, unhealthy state of mind. You are not going crazy or weirdo or something. This is the state of Brahman. This is the tradition. This is what our gurus teach us. They guide us so we don't get lost in the labyrinth of the mind and we can identify, hey, I am reaching a proper spiritual state. Look, Krishna has defined that state and when I am equal, when I have this equanimity, when I eliminate these attachments, then I am as Krishna said. And that is the state of Brahman. So, this is the state of Brahman. Having attained it, a man is not deluded. 
Realize, therefore, that the question exists in the subtext somewhere. Because many people say, guys, are you sure you are not going deluded? No, that's what skeptical people tell to any one of you who do yoga. Oh boy, this yoga which you guys practice, like I would understand if you do just gymnastics, but this spiritual yoga, boy, it's such a slippery, dangerous thing because all of you seem to be living in a delusion. All of you believe in a delusion. Yeah, sure, now you are telling me that you listen to some music by I don't know whom and you feel shudders along your spine and you feel I don't know what emotion... Boys, this is self-suggestion, it's self-hypnosis, it's like you are living in a big, big delusion. Krishna is his guru and he tells him clearly, having attained it, a man is not deluded. This is not part of the labyrinth of the mind. This is not maya. This is where the truth resides. It's good to go in this direction and not to be afraid of it. So he says, this is the state of Brahman, and going there, a man is not deluded. Established in that, even at the last moment, which means even in the moment of death. He says, if you reach that, even in the very last second of your life, which as we tell you very clearly in the Art of Dying workshops, it's impossible if you have a chaotic monkey mind, Because in the moment of death, you will be confronted with fear, confusion, attachments, the pain of letting go of everything and everyone. And your last worry will be to go into this state of Brahman, of detachment, to go in Sahasrara, basically. But if you would, which is a big if, if you would, then Krishna says clearly, Krishna mentions at least two, three times, the moment of death, the art of dying. And he says, established in that even at the last moment. He doesn't say what you did before. The last 20 years, God knows what you did. But being established in that even at the last moment, he attains eternal freedom and the oneness with Brahman, the eternal, the divine consciousness. Therefore, three major statements. This is the state of Brahman. No, you are not deluded. Whatever skeptical people say, this is not delusion. This is what the tradition teaches us. This is what our gurus teach us. And established in that, he says, attaining, being established therein, even at the end of life, one attains to oneness with Brahman. Therefore, Krishna describes one of the essences of the art of dying. Reach this, at least in the last moment. But of course, one who has not trained during a lifetime, the chance to attain that as you are dying is nil. That's why the correct art of dying in yoga, it does involve that you do train a little bit, that you prepare a little bit. This being said, we are changing chapter. In the next 30-something minutes, we'll not go a full hour, we are going to start with the chapter 3.